welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Jeremiah Bourgeois, a, a journalist, legal scholar, formerly incarcerated person, and soon-to-be law student at Gonzaga University School of Law. So, uh, go Zags, as it were. Um, and uh, we will discuss his personal experiences as well as his his legal scholarship. So, welcome to the show, Jeremiah. Uh, thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm. I'm really excited to have you on, and I was really glad to come across your story on on Twitter the other day. Um, I, I wonder for listeners who might not yet be familiar with you, your story, and the work you've done in the criminal justice and criminal justice reform area. If you could just start by telling people a little bit about yourself, kind of who you are, and sort of what. Uh, what path has your life taken over the last many years? Uh, well, I was uh, one of the early cohorts of juveniles who were sentenced to life without parole. In 1992, I was arrested for an aggravated murder. I had killed a witness who had testified against my older brother, who was 15 years old. Uh, it's something I regret and haunts me to this day, but it led me to receive a life sentence. And throughout that process, I began studying the law in order to try to find a way to effectively advocate for myself, uh, notwithstanding the fact that I thought I would never be released. And it led me to end up publishing legal commentaries. And here I am today, heading to law school after being out for six months. <laughs> yeah, well, so I'm I'm really interested in the process that led you as an incarcerated person to become interested in the law, start studying the law, and get to a point where you could be publishing your own legal scholarship. Was that something that happened right away? Or what was your experience like when you first arrived at the prison uh, and sort of how did you come to the place where you were interested in doing this kind of work? You know, when I first came to prison, it, uh, my time was really just defined by being in solitary confinement. I was young. I was angry. I was trying to deal with the fact that I was going to die imprisoned. And I had to create an aura of invincibility in the sense of providing enough of a deterrent, so to speak, to ensure that I wasn't going to be victimized. So if something would happen, I made sure that I took it one step further than somebody would believe. And, uh, you know, I gained a history of violence and a reputation for it while I was imprisoned. But after about 10 years, a friend of mine, uh, he had actually filed a pro se brief in court and got seven years of his sentence knocked off. And we were in solitary together. And I had asked him, how in the world did you do something like that? And he was like, man, I just been in the law library, man. You don't go. And I was like, no. And he said, you, you got to have your degree or something by now. And I was like, man, I don't got nothing but a GED. I was about eight years into my sentence, eight or nine. And he just got this sad look on his face and said, 
homie, if I could do this as smart as you are, I know you can. And it just struck because I I had never looked at myself as being particularly smart, but seeing some guy who had got seven years knocked off his sentence, telling me that I should have no problem learning that type of stuff. I just committed myself to learning the law. And uh, not too many months later, a guy in a cell next door to me in solitary committed suicide. And I just realized the only way I was going to make it through that was to try to find something to focus my mind on. And that to me added value to my life and just not only being able to effectively advocate for myself, but for others, I realized that's something that can keep me going. And I just started going to the law library whenever I had an opportunity. Well, from what you've described and what I've read in your work, it seems like it would have been difficult or really maybe even impossible for you to do that kind of thing when you first arrived in prison. Like what changed in terms of your experience or sort of your relationship to the prison environment that made it possible for you to sort of start doing this alternative kind of work and start thinking of yourself as someone who is studying the law and interested in the law and thinking about your own education and, um, and self-improvement. You know, the irony is I was involved in so many violent incidents so early in my confinement. I mean, not only assaults on prisoners, but on correctional officers, that that reputation for violence was enough to deter people from doing things to me years down the road. So when I did finally shift and decide to go in another direction, uh, people knew that, you know, he might be studying books uh, he might be sitting there with a textbook or reading some philosophy or in the law library, but he's not the one to be playing with. And, you know, unfortunately, uh, all of that violence was a rational response to the environment. And it's what gave me the breathing room and space to carve a new path without having people try to undermine me. Did you feel like the the kind of the prison environment forced you to engage in that kind of violence, whether you wanted to or not? There's no doubt I was so young. Uh, I mean, you know, prison is a place where you've got guys who, because of their history of trauma, they've learned to deal with things in negative ways. You want something, you take it. Uh, prison fosters that just given the hyper-masculinity of the environment, coupled to everybody's impoverished, given the fact that you're making 20 or 30 cents an hour, but you need to buy commissary in order to fulfill your nutritional needs. And it just, I mean, all of the ingredients for deviance are right there in prison. And, you know, you come there when you're a kid, you are ripe for the picking. And I just committed myself to not being that guy. I mean, early on, I mean, as soon as I got to prison, the guy I used to play cards with was raped. And I, I just was committed not to being that guy. 
And the same level of commitment I devoted to not being victimized, I ultimately devoted to transforming myself. Well, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the prison library and sort of how, which prisoners use it, how they use it, and what kinds of, what kinds of resources are actually available to them in the library. So unfortunately, the only thing you'll really find in the law library is case law. You're not going to find any treatises, anything like that, simply case law, the reporters. And all of that has to be provided just constitutionally as part of a prisoner's right of access to the courts. I mean, you can't access the courts if you can't even cite a case, but they're not going to give you anything beyond that. And so, you know, it's really going in there and reading case law. Uh, You know, what I would do is if a guy had a question about his case, I would just research it as if it was my own and then write a memorandum for him explaining everything I learned and letting them take it from there, whether they were going to use it to write an attorney to explain why they needed representation or whether they were going to try to file a brief themselves. It's you, learning by doing is how I figured it out. Mm. Well, in your experience, how much access did did people in prison have to formal legal advice, like from attorneys outside the prison? Or was most of the legal advice prisoners were getting passed between each other? No, it's passed between each other, I would say over 90%. And unfortunately, of that 90%, uh, 90% of it is probably bogus. Uh, I mean, you've got some people that don't understand the difference between a holding and the dissent. Uh, You have people that I call... uh, I can't even think of a way to describe them. Uh, Matter of fact, I can do it by telling a story. Uh, There was a jailhouse lawyer named Juju. And what he would do is he would hang around the law library and he would see guys researching and he would start talking to them about their case. And whatever issue you came up with, he would be able to pluck something out of a case book to show you why you could win. And of course, if you don't know the difference between a dissent or a holding, and if you don't know the difference between, you don't know how to shepherdize and see if this holding is still valid or it's been overturned or limited, uh, he would be able to show it to you and say, look right here, man, you, you shouldn't even be here. And he'll put it right back on that shelf. You'd have no idea which book he grabbed because they all look the same. And he would have you pay him 500 or a thousand or 1500 bucks to do his legal work to file that bogus brief for you. And of course it was frivolous, but by the time you realized it and the other 15 or 20 people he did that to realized it, he would be on a chain bus out of there uh, because people are looking to kill him because he defrauded them of all their money. And I actually used his name, which is a noun, and turned it into a verb. I said, you've been jujued. Don't get jujued. And so there's a whole lot of juju going on in prison. And uh, unfortunately, even after I had been I started publishing and was actually cited as secondary authority, I can tell somebody, listen, what that person just told you 
is wrong. Here's why. And they would not believe me because having hope is that important. And when you're going to die in prison, you're not about to let somebody tell you that the issue you think is going to get you a second opportunity at life is wrong or is frivolous. And I mean, in time, I learned not even to dissuade people of the notion that they had a meritorious argument because hope is important. Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess it's pretty hard to file a bar complaint uh, against a jailhouse lawyer. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah. Bar complaints aren't going to fly, and and you know what? It even became a time when I was like, you know what? I mean, by the time a court tells this guy that that brief is frivolous, he's had two years of hope. And I mean, I had a guy commit suicide next to me because he lost hope. So if $1,500 is worth two more years of hope for somebody who has transformed themselves and who deserves an opportunity to be released because retribution has served its course, you know what? Go on and pay that money, man. Hope is important. I mean, does there develop a sense among among prisoners like who actually knows what they're talking about and who doesn't. And I also kind of wonder about like kind of precedent as it were. I mean, are there like, if someone's actually successful with something, do people look at what they've done and think, well, maybe I can use that as like a model for doing something else or do, is there a tendency to sort of reinvent things from scratch? Yeah, there's very little reinventing things from scratch. And unfortunately, the reputations that the Jews get uh, aren't really deserved. And I say that because he's gotten a rep. He's able to defraud people or this type is able to do it because they've won in the past. But the things that they've won are like on issues where a court has already determined that a case is retroactive. So all you need to do is file and say, hey, this identical issue happened in my case. The court said in Enri, John Doe, that if this happened to anybody, they're entitled to be resentenced. And because people in prison don't understand that the difference between something like that and actually coming out coming up with something from whole cloth and being successful, you can get a reputation just piggybacking on briefs that lawyers are filing to get guys back to court due to a retroactive change in the law and use that couple of wins in order to defraud legions of prisoners and give, and give blizzards of words of terrible advice. It's, it's really bad. Yeah. Well, so I mean, I, I guess I wonder if if prison libraries could have any additional resources, what do you think would be most useful to prisoners trying to make sense of the laws surrounding their own personal cases and circumstances and help them better understand sort of what they can and can't practically accomplish? You know, I think I, – I, I don't think it's the law library that needs to be expanded. It's the regular library. I think so many people – I mean, in order to understand case law, 
you have to have very good reading comprehension and analytical ability in order to not only understand what you're reading, but to tease out the rationales. And that isn't something you can just go from a history of being severed from the educational system when you're young, getting a GED that they're handing out in prison as long as you show up, and then think you're going to jump from there to a law library and be able to not only understand the issues involved in your case, but be able to identify what might have went wrong procedurally by reading case law. It's it's too much of a leap, but very few people actually take the time to become well-rounded enough in other educational aspects before they ever set foot in that law library. Mm. So did you feel that reading other kinds of material in the regular library were really instrumental to you in developing your ability to do the kind of, well, I guess both journalism, legal scholarship, and lawyering that you ended up doing? It, It was. And you know, what's funny, I learned to write by reading just regular fiction. I would start paying attention to the sentence structure. Why is a semicolon right there instead of a period? Or, you know, I read so many regular books that I didn't understand. I didn't realize at the time till I actually started taking distance learning courses that I learned a whole lot, whether it's history, uh, politics, philosophy, because of course, in order to write a novel, it has to be grounded in some type of reality. And by the time I started taking courses, I was like, oh, I'm familiar with this type of stuff. But it's it's just devoting yourself to becoming smarter, to becoming knowledgeable about the world around you that you've really got to do before you get in that law library or you're just going to be lost. So to transition a little bit, I mean, while you were incarcerated, you produced an impressive body of journalism as well as several law review articles that have been published in law journals at, at different schools. Um, which one of those came first and how did that initially start happening? So the first uh, was the irrelevance of reform that was uh, in the Ohio State Journal of Criminal Law. And that came right after the U.S. Supreme Court decided Miller versus Alabama, which invalidated uh, life without mandatory life without parole sentences for juveniles. And I happened to just write an essay regarding my crime and my thoughts about punishment and you know, decided I would just submit it to a whole bunch of different law journals. And at the time, uh, Ohio happened to be doing a symposium on Miller. And so it was really perfect timing when my essay landed. Uh, For the second, it was uh, also in Ohio's journal. uh, And that actually resulted because the attorneys who were representing me did not believe my argument about uh, policy that was being applied by the Department of Corrections involving the release of prisoners who were subject to Miller. And 
I just could not get them to take what I was saying seriously. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to write about it and try to have it published in a law journal and hopefully a judge will take it seriously. And ultimately a judge did because they relied upon it as secondary authority and invalidated the policy. But that's, that's actually how the third uh, journal piece came to. It was realizing that I had no legal advocates that were willing to present these arguments and deciding to write about them myself and hope that I can get the judiciary to take notice, if not in my case, in all of the cases that are similarly situated to me. Mm. Well, let's talk a little bit about the first article because, you know, it's based on your own personal experiences and observations in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, is maybe a little controversial for some people who are kind of pushing ideas around kind of rehabilitation across the board. Um, so sort of what are your thoughts on, on that subject? You, you talk about the concept of triage in the article. And I, I wonder if you could talk about what you mean by that, why that's, why you think that's important and sort of how the article grew out of what you personally observed and experienced while you were incarcerated? You know, it's just been my personal experience that people who want to change, it really doesn't matter what you put in front of them in order to further that growth. I mean, if somebody wants to become spiritual and they're looking to ground themselves in faith, uh, I think if they ended up in front of a Quran or the Bible or the Torah, it would do the trick to fulfill the need that they have. And, you know, I think a lot of the rehabilitative programs in prison, uh, to the extent that they get a reputation of being rehabilitative, it's simply because of the cohort of people who wanted to change. But I don't think you can force change on anybody. And I actually find it offensive because it takes away the agency of somebody. If you are committed to doing wrong, you're going to do that. I've seen it and I've lived it. And when my mind was in that state, there was nothing you were going to be able to put in front of me to dissuade me of the things I wanted to do. And so when I see countless resources expended on people who are committed to wrongdoing, I just think it's a waste. Leave them alone and let them, let them do their time. You sent them there to be punished. The calculus of punishment was measured in a determinate sentence. And when that number is done, set them free. As for those people who actually want to change and try to change the trajectory of their life while they're confined, utilize those resources that you would have been expending on these other guys in order to enhance your rehabilitative programming for the cohort of people who want to change. I mean, I got friends on both sides of the spectrum, and I've been on both sides of the spectrum, and I can assure you when I was committed to wrongdoing, I wanted you to leave me the hell alone. I was going to do what I wanted to do. And that was that. And I just changed directions. Mm. Do you think that corrections officers and maybe more importantly, prison wardens are 
kind of sympathetic to or kind of capable of taking the same perspective that you describe? Or do you think there would need to be some kind of a change in mindset on their part as well in order to sort of realize some of the suggestions that you've made? You know, I think that a lot of correctional officials actually feel the same way I do, at least with respect to leaving people alone if they don't want to change. Because at the end of the day, I think they espouse a rehabilitative ethos simply because they have to. You, it's, you cannot be a correctional official and not speak of reform and rehabilitation. And so they mouth the words and they lay claim to it. But at the end of the day, uh, I'm not convinced that they take any of that seriously. Mm -hmm. Well, so maybe we can talk a little bit about your second and third papers as well, which I think are closely related in a lot of ways, talking about sort of the implementation of Miller and how it ought to work at a kind of uh, policy and administrative level. And in the second paper, you were objecting quite particularly to uh, a policy that the Washington, as I understand, like the parole board had adopted and arguing that it was inconsistent with the actual language of the relevant statute, as well as sort of with the principles at stake. I wonder if you could think, talk a little bit about what you thought the problem was and what ultimately happened to get the policy reversed. Well, the problem I've the problem is that the language of the statute that effectuated Miller mandated the release of prisoners if the board un, unless the board found it was more likely than not that they would reoffend a preponderance of the evidence, you had to release them. And so what the board was doing was making the finding that we do not believe you're likely to reoffend but then requiring prisoners to spend another 12 to 18 months slowly transitioning to the community uh, in order to reduce their likelihood to reoffend. And my point was you have no authority to continue trying to reduce one's likelihood to reoffend. I mean, you, if that was if that was legitimate, you can keep somebody till they're 70 years old. A 70-year-old is less likely to reoffend than a 40-year-old. And the statute mandated release. Once you make the finding, release them. And, you know, I just – it didn't matter what lawyers I talked to, what advocacy organizations were involved in uh, undoing life without parole in Washington state – they just could not wrap their hands around that argument. And, you know, I ended up writing a journal piece about it and just highlighting the inconsistencies in the statute and my thoughts around what their intent was behind it. And about a year after it was published, the uh, an intermediate court of appeals in the state adopted that position and cited my journal piece. <laughs> It's amazing. So, I mean, do you have a sense of sort of what impact your piece and that judicial opinion have had on actual incarcerated people? Like, to what extent do you, do you, do you have any idea to what extent it's helped people get released more quickly? With, yeah. Yeah. These were, these were my, a lot of these guys were my friends. I was 
as this was being, uh, after it was published, I was actually in a facility with a guy who was about to have his parole hearing. And he was conveying to his attorney that, you know, you need to read this journal piece, man. I don't think they can transition me. And she ultimately read it and said, you know, it's, you know, it's well written, but yeah, I don't know. They've been doing this for a long time. And she was resistant to presenting that argument to the parole board. And right before his hearing, the court of appeals decision came out citing it. And I got to watch my friend walk out of there 18 months early. And that was absolutely great. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. That I mean, it's, it's pretty rare that any law journal article has that kind of real world impact on people's lives, um, especially when written under those circumstances. So I really commend you for that. You know, and I, I'm hoping that the, the third one uh, has the same impact. Uh, you know, it was, you know, the parole board has been requiring prisoners to take a faith-based program. And I wrote about this, not out of my not out of any complaint about Christianity in itself, but I had a former cellmate who was a Muslim and not just any Muslim. He was the Imam and he was required to take a Christian faith-based program and his release was denied because he hadn't taken the programming recommended by the board. And that was just so outrageous to me that 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 gave birth to the third journal piece and hopefully i mean i i i have some i have some issues pending in front of the court right now and i cited that article and hopefully it will result in in validating that practice too yeah i mean i could see obvious like first amendment free expression type arguments you know for uh, free religious practice arguments that that just seems really outrageous yeah it is it 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 in my view it violates the establishment clause and hopefully uh no one else will have to be compelled to adopt a faith or fake their way through pseudo religious services in order to be released especially people who demonstrably are no longer likely to commit crimes Mm. Well, so Jeremy, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your decision to go to law school. When did that become something you were interested in? Uh, and what led you to choose Gonzaga as the place you wanted to go to law school? Uh, you know, I was actually, when I was young, I, I used to be called the judge by my grandma. Apparently, they thought I was going to be a lawyer. Uh, but of course, my life took a totally different direction. But I, I didn't think it was possible just given the nature of my crime for a long time until Miller highlighted all of the distinctions between an adult and a juvenile w with respect to criminality. And a recent case that came out with a former incarcerate named Tara Simmons, who mm. the who had went to law school and then was not allowed to sit for the bar and the Washington Supreme court ruled in her favor. And in doing so really highlighted that what the fitness and conduct board needs to look at is the evidence of reform and your potential going forward, as opposed to 
the crime in and of itself and the factors that related to it. So it's really a forward thing. And given that evidence of reform and age at the time of the crime and how much time has elapsed since the crime was committed or now looked at in order to determine whether you can sit for the bar, I realized that it, it's possible for me to practice law were I to go to law school and in fact, Tara Simmons encouraged me to apply prior to my release. We had happened to meet at a function at the prison where I was confined at. And so far as Gonzaga, you know, it was I had actually applied to all three state schools, uh, the University of Washington, Seattle, U and Gonzaga. And uh, I ultimately chose Gonzaga. Uh, and given the fact that they have a two year accelerated degree program, it just really was more my speed given the fact that I'm in my forties now and being able to practice and have as long of the career as I can, you know, one year makes a difference once you get past 40. <laughs> I feel you. I feel you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. so what are your plans when you graduate from law school to the extent that you've sort of settled on plans uh, that far down the line. And I, I can't help but ask whether you plan on continuing to produce legal scholarship as as a law student. Uh, I am. I'm actually writing a piece right now uh, uh, in hoping that we can uh, highlight a new policy that allows prosecutors in this state to bring guys back to be resentenced to lesser terms of confinement. Uh, but as far as going forward, you know, uh, Sean Hopwood is really the, he's carrying the, he's carrying the light, uh, being able to teach in the way that he is, uh, not only bringing what he knows as a lawyer, given he's a professor now at Georgetown, but being able to couple it to his lived experience, I would love to do that, but First and foremost, I just want to be in a position to be able to fight for guys who are confined and I think should have a second chance. And but for the fact that they don't have legal assistance to file clemency petitions or to try to find them some type of relief, they're sitting there and they're likely going to die in prison. Mm -hmm. Well, Jeremiah, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Um, I think your story is incredibly inspirational and impressive, and your scholarship is really first rate. And I look forward to seeing the work you produce in the future, and hopefully we can have you on the program again sometime soon. Thank you very much, man. I look forward to it.
Would be way. 